Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley. Welcome back to Thread, podcast number 98. Thread, God's truth tying together all the pieces of your life. Thread is the broadcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. Thread. Hey, we're excited to be back with you today for another episode of the Thread Podcast. want to give a big shout out to all of our listeners in Indonesia. God bless you in that huge, beautiful land uh, just down the road from where we're at today in Thailand. Well, uh, this is an exciting passage. Today we're in Acts chapter 13, and there is just so much that we can learn as leaders from Acts chapter 13, because the Thread Podcast is not just a Bible study. I mean, that would be enough, but it's a Bible study for leaders, a verse-by-verse study of God's Word as we look for um, lessons in Scripture that would help us as leaders to do our job more effectively. So that's what the Thread Podcast is all about, and Acts 13 is full of great, um, great help for us as leaders. Okay, uh, Acts chapter 13 is a lot like Mark 8.27. Mark 8.27 turns the whole book of Mark. Uh, that's when Jesus asked the apostles, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when that happens, the whole book now turns toward the cross and the resurrection and the Great Commission. And in Acts chapter 13, it's much the same. Without Acts 13, we would be reading the history of an ancient sect within, Jeru- within Judaism that flourished for about 30 years, and then it died off like many other groups that were contemporary to it. Uh, it would have died off in 70 AD when the Romans surrounded Jerusalem, tore it down, destroyed the temple, and then banished the Jews out of the Holy Land. Uh, But instead, because of Acts 13, we're going to read the story of how the Jews-only Jerusalem church now becomes a multicultural movement that has continued to spread across all the nations of the earth, becoming today the only truly world faith. Uh, And the, the chapter just opens, now in the church that was at Antioch. And I want to stop right there for a minute because I got the pondering this week. Uh, I wonder what would happen worldwide. Just the release of mm, good things in the church. I wonder what would happen if all over the world in one day Christians everywhere agreed to drop all the names of their churches. And we no longer had brand names. And we no longer spent our energy asserting our brand, our particular brand of church. But we did just what they did in the New Testament. And that was, it's just the church at blank place. So that if if someone said, is there a church here? Then the answer would be, yes, there's three churches here. There's one there and there's one there. Like, uh, you know, when actually I live in the part of the world that has Islam and has Buddhist temples, and temples do have names, but it's not like, and so do mosques, but it's just, is there a mosque in this town? Yes, there's one there. See it on the hill. Um, That's kind of, I think, how New Testament churches operated. They would never have thought to name their church 
and make a brand and an organization out of it. And ministers would have never thought to give their ministry a name um, as just food for thought. So we start off at the, it just says now, this is a lesson about what happened in the church that was at Antioch. Now, this is not a church of thousands and thousands of people. It's a church of, I don't know, a few hundred people. Um, But it is a church, and it's the church in that community. The word church, ecclesia, simply means that God called out to people to come to him. And a lot of people did not come, but some people did come. And those who come to the Lord when he calls them uh, meet the Lord, their lives are changed by the Lord, and then when we're when we're, we've answered the Lord, we turn and look to our right and left, and we find that we're not the only ones who answered the Lord. There's my brother and there's my sister on my right and left, and this becomes my spiritual family. It's not based on anything except that we all answered the Lord's call together. And that's exactly what's happening in this chapter. Now, this chapter talks about uh, five men, five key men who were in that church as prophets and teachers. And here's another jumping off point. You know, since this group did not have buildings to have to pay for, uh, they were able to put their energy on developing the spiritual core of what a church is and the infrastructure spiritually of what goes into making a powerful ministry team. And they weren't worried about their brand because they didn't have one. And they weren't worried about the, uh, the mortgage because they didn't have one. They didn't have a building. But they intended to be influential. They wanted to impact their region. And they knew to do that, they would have to flow in the Holy Spirit. And God would have to give them both the instructions and the power to do whatever it was he was calling them to do as their part in the Great Commission. Well, it names these five, and the first one that gets named is Barnabas. He's the leader. He is the pastor uh, of this church, but he doesn't pastor alone. He shares that load with four other brothers. There's Simeon, who tradition says carried the cross. There's Lucius, uh, Menaean, who was a childhood friend of King Herod. So that makes him an elite and then there was Saul, that's the Jewish name for Paul, and he's the last one mentioned. He is the youngest uh, in the group in rank, and uh, his being mentioned last says all of that. So in verse 2, it says, they were there and they were ministering to the Lord. You know, that's beautiful. God ministers to us a lot. And these brothers were ministering to the Lord. They were loving on the Lord. They were worshiping the Lord They were just spending time with the Lord and they were fasting, verse 2. And then it says, and the Holy Spirit said. Man, we can stop right there again. You know, this is a vital part of our life as God's people. And it's absolutely essential to our uh, launching life-giving churches and ministries and movements. If we're going to be a life-giving movement, that life has to come from the Holy Spirit And we don't have the power to do that. So we need the active presence of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, the Holy Spirit is all around us. And he desires to minister in the church. He doesn't need us to think of, uh, you know, things to do and maybe give God a little bit of space on the program. 
He's the whole program. His presence was there, mediated through his gifts. And that's why it's really important in all of our lives and in our churches that we have seasons of prayer and fasting to just sit with God and to listen to him speaking to us. And the Holy Spirit does speak very clearly. And he says two things. He says, first, the word now. And secondly, the word separate. And uh, he's calling. He's going to give a call. He says, now separate to me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. And, you know, most calls work like this. It's a now, and we just have to go do what God told us to do. And then it's separate to me. Separate. Move away from all that you know. Move away from what you think you're going to be doing. And join me, God, in a new place where I'm already at work. And that was what the calling said to them. God is already working somewhere, and you're not there. And he's calling you to leave what you're doing and leave where you think your life is supposed to go and go join God in this new place. And the Holy Spirit gives them direction for their calling. And the direction of most people's calling, especially if you're a missionary, is away. You know, your direction of your ministry takes you away. You go away from your church brothers. You go away from your blood family. You go away from your language and your food and your friends and you go to a new geographic place. And this is your assigned place. And it's just a fact that missionaries have always had to deal with is that their ministry requires them to separate. And you separate in body. And if God has called you to be a missionary and maybe there's some missionaries, uh, there's a missionary out there listening to me right now. And if so... I've been a missionary for about 30 years, and let me just give you from my heart. Um, the first two years, we were on the mission field, and we were there, engaged, loved those people, but we also had a, a very close connection that we were maintaining with our homeland. And in the third year, and I think most missionaries will either stay or go home in the third year, um, because you have to make up your mind. And in that year, the Lord said to me, put both hands on the plow and quit looking back. So at that point, I quit following the sports teams and the culture and American news. And I just became as much as I could part of where I was and disconnected myself to a much greater extent, which made me 10 times more effective where I was. And it allowed my heart to settle. You know, uh, when God sent the children of Israel into exile, he told them, plant trees, um, get, you know, be here a while. You don't need to keep thinking about going home. Just settle and get in, you know, get in the saddle and just plan to stay here. Um, so now verse three, immediately Barnabas and uh, Saul accept their assignment. The church bids them farewell, uh, lays hands on them, believing that to put their hands on them helps them, they commissioned them as their official representative of their church and with all that God had given those people. That's what it means when you put your hands on someone. You're saying everything God has given me, I'm giving it to you now. And this is the birth of the missionary ministry as a lasting office in the church. And I think it's so cool that this happened in a small Gentile church. I mean, there was no fanfare, no big conference. 
It's just five guys in a room praying, and the Holy Spirit said, I'm starting something new. And, you know, that's something else that amazes me about God is that, you know, we're very impressed about big events, and we need we need big events. <laughs> Part of that is to validate ourselves. You know, we feel good about a big event that we were able to host, and and just the, the, just the emotion of it, you know, the impact of a thousand people doing something. And so here's God just showing up with five people. And I've been in these situations over and over again where it's just, uh, you know, four or five of us somewhere and God gives somebody a, a word of prophecy and it is exactly what we need to hear. And he births something. And you just think, why would God even know we were here? Why would he even pay attention to this little, this little you know, seed that we're taking care of? But that's what's going on with this church. It's just a small church, but it's the first church that had a, a you know a good number of Gentiles in it, and it is the first place that the world started calling these people Christ followers. And because they're now outside of the narrow confines of Jerusalem, this uh, gospel of the kingdom is able to start spreading. So these two brothers, sent out by the Holy Spirit, bought a ticket sailing west which was the only way that they could go. And, you know, this is kind of the Pentecostal way, which is what this book is all about. You know, in the early days, there weren't you didn't have a choice whether you were going to be part of a Pentecostal church or some other kind of church. Pentecostals are not a, a branch off the tree. It is the root of the tree. It is the trunk of the tree that you walk in the Spirit, led by the Spirit in the gifts and power of the Spirit, and you follow what the Holy Spirit tells you to do, and then you open your eyes and you look for the coincidences that God's going to send your way, and you you jump on uh, opportunities, and you expect that your success will come from the Holy Spirit. And that has always been you know, the center of what a real church is. So I think it's crazy to try to think of that as a, a little branch of Christianity. It's It's the only Christianity there was for hundreds of years. So these brothers don't know where they're, you know, they don't really know what's going to happen. They just do what the Spirit said do, and then they're going to find out after that. So actually, we find out in verse 5 that there's three of them. There's Barnabas, the leader. There's Saul. And they take John Mark, the young man uh, that uh, actually has had a lot of a lot of uh, interaction with the apostles. Uh, just kind of in between the lines, you, you just see his name peppered into the Scripture here and there, he's a young man, got a lot of potential, and both of them see you know, the calling of God on his life. Well, when these brothers get to their first port, they go where they know how to go. They go to the Jewish synagogue, and this begins a strategy. Uh, in missions work, we call it E0. You evangelize people who already go to church. And then from E0, evangelize zero. Then you could stretch out a little bit to E1 evangelism, where it's, you know, the people that they're, they're in your culture, they're in your language, they're just like you, but they are not, uh, they're not yet attending church, they're not in the, the fellowship circle of God's people. But, you know, some are in that circle and they don't know the Lord. And that's where they start. So in verse 5, they begin to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and they tell again the story of Jesus. And this story begins to spread, as we would say today. They started trending. And uh, the city mayor, who is a seeker of truth, uh, a Roman, the proconsul, verse 7, uh, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. 
is seeking truth and he sends for them. He seeks to hear the word of God. And I think this is also such a wonderful part of missions work. And once, you know, you don't have to go abroad, but you do have to take it on the road. And as you get outside your circle and as you go where the Holy Spirit tells you to go, we need to go intending to evangelize people. You know, and that's what makes a mission uh, effective is that you intend to evangelize. You don't just evangelize if you get a chance. You gear up for it. And so they are ready to evangelize. And once you get like that, all kinds of random experiences will take place. And there are people that you could never get into. You know, if they had instead gone knocking on the door of the Roman proconsul, they wouldn't have been admitted inside. But now the Lord causes that man to hear from some trusted source about these guys who just came to town and they're speaking about this kingdom of God, which was the core teaching of Jesus and of the early church. And uh, he wants to hear them. And so he welcomes them in and they speak the gospel to him. But, you know, the darkness will always fight back. And in verse 7, we find that there's a man named Elamus who is a sorcerer. And he resists. He, he actually has a second name, son of Jesus, uh, son of Joshua. Uh, it could be either one of those because of the way the language works. And he fights back. And verse 8 says he, he withstood them. He seeks to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And then verse 9, Saul, who is also called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he looked intently at him and he said, oh, full of deceit and all fraud. You know, you fraud means you're, a, you're fake. You're a liar. You're full of deceit. You, you twist people. You lie. You are, full, you are full of fraud. You son of the devil. You enemy of righteousness. Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Uh, you know, Power encounters are essential to the spread of the gospel. And we need to have it in our mind that we are able to do these things, uh, that we have this authority, the same authority that Paul had and Barnabas had. We share also. We are God's children. We operate in our, in our calling and our authority. And the scripture says this man was astonished. Now, something happens in verse 13. It says, now, when Paul and his party set sail, did you get that? This thing started out as Barnabas leading Saul and uh, John Mark was there with him. Now it is Paul and his party. Under the circumstances, Paul's training and Paul's experience and Paul's personality in three areas. One, public discourse. Two, conflict. And number three, Paul's boldness makes him a better leader. And Barnabas, who I love this guy, Barnabas yields to the leadership of Paul in this missions trip. You know, when they were in the church, 
Barnabas is a senior leader, and honestly, Barnabas is a better pastor. He's much easier to live with than Paul. But this is spiritual war, and Paul's boldness matters more in war. See, when you initiate things like this, like mission, when you initiate things, it requires bold, determined leadership, unafraid of a fight. And Paul is not afraid of conflict. You know, I hate conflict. Uh, I will get into it if I have to, but I don't like it. And uh, Paul didn't mind it at all. And he didn't mind it in public. He didn't mind kind of like Josh McDowell from before and Ravi Zacharias from before. uh, You know, that I'm looking for God to raise up some people like them for this generation. I mean, they're still both ministering, but they're famous for that, that they were not afraid to go to go to Harvard, go to any place and stand toe-to-toe with whoever those people want to put up against them and just stand and debate righteousness. And Paul's like that. He's, he's learned. He's good at it. Um, he's not afraid of conflict. He sees that conflict is a, a pregnant opportunity, that in conflict people are listening. I mean, everybody's paying attention. And conflict has the chance to turn things so quickly. So, uh, you know, here's Paul, and he doesn't mind conflict, and Paul is bold as a lion, and Barnabas recognizes that this is a gift that we need. So um, I just think, I think this is just a great open door for us to understand what goes into missions outreach, boldness, authority, confidence, uh, public discourse, road tours, you got to take it on the road new places, spiritual war with authority, taking the truth to new urban areas, but knowing that you are called by God, you stand in his anointing, you have a church behind you, people praying for you, and you are following the voice of the Holy Spirit. Let's all do that and let God use us to extend his kingdom. Hey, I would love to hear from you. So just write me directly, chuck at quinley.com. And if you would do me a huge favor, if you like the Thread Podcast, would you please go on the iTunes store, search Quinley Thread, and then leave a comment, put some stars, and help other people find out about Thread Podcast. Share it with your friend. And I'll see you next time. That's all for now on this week's Thread Podcast.